I still remember that feeling. I've never had a feeling like that before or since. And uh, I, I suppose there are worse things. I can't imagine it. When you're 18 and you're a young guy, you think you're immortal. I learned I wasn't. My mom was back in Walnut Creek, which was 50, 60 miles away. And dad phoned her up and said, Steve's had an accident. He's broken his leg. This is Lifespan. I'm Jackie Wolf. Accidents can permanently change our perception of life, family, and friends. Steve Miner was 18 years old the summer he fell 150 feet off a cliff in Northern California. He shares his story. In 1974, I graduated from high school, and I went and was a camp counselor up in the mountains. And taking care of a lot of kids, I contracted mononucleosis and pneumonia, which flattened me for about a month. And we were about to move to England that year. And it took me about a month to recover. And to celebrate, my father took me on a drive up to say goodbye to the California coast. I just bought a camera with the money that I'd earned camp counseling, and I wanted to take pictures of the coast. It's lovely there. And we drove from where we lived in Walnut Creek, which is in the East Bay area, to the base of Mount Tamalpais, which is just north of San Francisco. The first stop, I'd been sleeping in the car because we got up early. Dad, dad like a lot of dads from that age, starts before dawn. Uh, so we came to this place, and it was a cliff, and I thought it would make for good photographs. So I got out, and we both got out, and I was taking photographs, and my camera case blew off, and it was a leather camera case. It cost $48, I still remember, because that was $2 less than I earned in a week of counseling at camp. And I thought, well, I want to get that back, right? So I saw where it blew off, and I followed a trail down, it lo what looked like a trail, down the cliff. And it broke on me, and I slipped. And if you, I don't know if you know the geology of the area, but it's all shale crumbly shale, you, you, if you can imagine, and it's little plants that have roots that don't go more than two inches deep. I came to a halt on a fist-sized piece of shale, and I was looking down, and about 150 feet below me, and I know this because the Coast Guard later measured it, was the ocean and rocks. And I thought, well, I'm in, I'm in some trouble now because I couldn't go up, I couldn't put enough weight on this piece of shale to get a jump to go up. I couldn't grab onto anything but because it was, it was like a nightmare. It was all crumbly dirt and, and shale. And while I was sitting there thinking, well, what do I do now? I was thinking of calling my dad and the piece of shale broke and I fell. I fell 150 feet and landed on what I can only assume were rocks because there wasn't much of a beach there. I was conscious during the whole thing. But I blacked out when I hit. I, I, I remember falling and I remember having fallen, I don't remember the actual process of hitting. I think I just must have had a small heart attack or something. I, I blacked out. Anyway, I, when I opened my eyes, I was wedged in between two big boulders with the sea coming in to my feet. And the sea there is about 48 degrees. It's very cold, which probably was a good thing because it probably slowed my, my bleeding. Uh, I thought, well, I was first concerned that I'd broke my back and I'd never be able to walk again. And I thought, well, have I hurt my head? Am I, am I thinking clearly? 
And so <laughs> I did something which was, seemed terribly logical to me at the time, but actually is illogical. I recited my social security number to see if I could remember a number. But of course, it could have been ZQFY for all I knew. Uh, anyway, my head wasn't hurt. I wasn't damaged. My back wasn't hurt. I could still move my feet, which was a good sign. Uh, I couldn't move myself. I was wedged tightly. And I looked, I, I'd blown off one shoe and my right elbow was, was hurting and my right wrist, my, my hand was pointing down towards my, my arm. So it had obviously broken. And it was, I was wedged in on my side and the water was hitting me. And I, of course, called out to my dad, but I heard nothing. And I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm dead now. I thought that this was the end. He didn't come down and he did. My dad is a, is a great guy and he's a very level-headed man. He did the right thing. Instead of coming down to rescue me, he went up to Highway 1, stopped traffic. Did he see you? He saw you go over. He heard me and, and, and he went and uh, they stopped traffic and they went and got the volunteer fire brigade at Stimson Beach who came down and pulled me out and that was quite painful. Uh, so how did they get down? They, oh. they climbed down. I think they were maybe repelled or maybe there was another route. I, I, I certainly didn't take the best route down. Let's put it that way. And in the meantime, okay, you're wedged between these two rocks. So you're actually not on the ground. You're wedged between two rocks uh, yeah. suspended. No, no, no. I'm, I'm on the ground. And the water was coming in and the tide was coming in. It makes the story even better. Um, had, had I gone on much longer, I'd have drowned. So the water – the breakers were hitting me and it was cold. Um, but they came and they, they put me in a, a back brace, I guess. It, was, it wasn't a stretcher. It was a metal thing. It was about three quarters of the length of my back. And they told me that moving me was dangerous and did I give my consent? And I said, yes. And so they took me out of that and – How much time had passed between – I have no idea. I've never known. But um, they, they took me out and they phoned the Coast Guard and, or they'd already phoned the Coast Guard. And the wind was very strong, as it most often is on the, on the California coast. And I was right up against the cliff and they were concerned. It, had it been one or two miles an hour faster, the wind, they wouldn't have picked me up because they were afraid of being blown into the cliff. So uh, these, these wonderful people from the Stimson Beach Volunteer Fire Department got me into the stretcher and they winched me up. And I don't remember – seeing very much as I went up. I was, I was otherwise occupied. But I very much remember going into the, the helicopter, seeing the guy in the helmet and thinking, I'm safe. And your dad was there? No. He was – I was the only one winched up. And suddenly I became enormously cold. I've never been that cold before or since. I'd lost – Ultimately, they gave me eight units of blood. I, I couldn't possibly have lost that all at once, but I lost it at some point. Uh, so I was low on blood. The average adult body contains eight to 12 units of blood. So yes, Steve was right. He couldn't have lost all that blood at once. He would have died. But during the course of his treatment, as he noted, almost his entire blood volume had to be replaced, likely due to the bleeding from his ruptured spleen. I think the shock had kept me warm up till that point. Just the, the, the sheer will to survive had kept me warm. But when I got into the helicopter and thought I was safe, I just shook like you wouldn't believe. I've never sh shaken like that before or since. So they flew me to a – what was then the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital. It's now a block of luxury flats in 
much more expensive than anything I could afford. But it, it was right at the um, base of the Golden Gate Bridge. Only you could almost hit the bridge with a rock from there. And it was at that time the Merchant Seamen's Hospital as well. And they were trained Coast Guard um, doctors, most of whom had joined the Coast Guard to avoid Vietnam. And so they were training as, as MDs. So it was a training hospital. And they flew me in. And that's when the, the, the horrible stuff began. I mean, the, the, the falling off the cliff was, was bad, but it's dramatic and you're in shock. So you, you don't really take it. I, I took it all in. I was, I was conscious the entire time, but it, some, it blocks the pain. The, the emergency blocks the pain. What really hurt was when they started to x-ray me because I had broken, it turned out, uh, my wrist, my elbow, my femur, very high up, only about two or three inches away from the hip. I'd cracked my hip and I'd broken my pelvis. Uh, so when they, they, they didn't want to give me any anesthetic because they didn't know what I'd hurt. They, they didn't know about internal injuries and they didn't know anything. They didn't know what I'd damaged and they wanted to get a good clear picture of it. So they had to take x-rays. And if you can imagine being moved around when you have five major bones broken, the pain was excruciating. Um, in, in one sense, it's kind of funny because you know how when you go to a doctor, they say, on a scale of one to 10, how do you feel about this pain? My answer is always 0.5 uh, because I know what a 10 is. And uh, I also know that, you know, you can get through pain. Uh, pain hasn't bothered me ever uh, since then quite so much. Discomfort, yes, but pain, no. It's, it's the oddest thing. You could take and smash my hand with a hammer and I wouldn't like it, but you, you learn to adapt. Pain is a temporary phenomenon for most people. And so uh, it was just, it was horrendous though. And then I was in the intensive care unit for 11 days after that. And that's again where the fun begins. Did you have internal damage or? To, yes, to I organs? had ruptured my spleen. Um, they did uh, exploratory surgery. I still have the scars to show. I have scars all over the place. I have the scar about uh, 10, 12 inches right from my uh, diaphragm down. And they dug around and found that I had, I had ruptured my spleen or damaged it. I was, had internal bleeding. And that was fairly painful as well or, or would, would lead to a good deal of pain. But I went into the um, intensive care unit. I quickly got shock lung. I don't know if that's a phenomenon that you're – maybe you're familiar with it, but I, I hadn't heard about it. I got a medical education when I was in the hospital. But when your femur has marrow in it, which produces your blood – your red blood cells. And when you crack your femur, it uh, releases a lot of that marrow into the bloodstream, which then immediately goes to the capillaries in your lungs and starts blocking. The, the, their ability to take on oxygen. I only have one lung, so I already have a problem with breathing. When I got this, um, I, I suddenly had a really hard time metabolizing oxygen. And my heart rate went up, I believe, over 200 beats per minute, which is very, very fast. And um, they did a number of things. One is they, they gave me enough morphine to kill most people because they wanted not to kill the pain but to lower my heart rate. And so I was on morphine, which was, was dreadful because I started to hallucinate. Uh, not, not hallucinate in, in the sense of imagining things, but seeing things in weird ways. And I, um, and I thought I was being tortured as well. But um, so they, they, they did that. They also put me on a respirator. And the respirator had only been recently developed. And it's because of leg wounds in Vietnam. 
that other people had had exactly this kind of thing where you get shocked lung if you're not treated and you die of pneumonia essentially. So five years earlier, I'd have been dead. But thanks to Vietnam, I'm, I'm alive today. They put me on that and a nasal gastric tube and the worst thing, I don't know what the worst thing is, but one of the worst things certainly was that they gave me no fluids for all those 11 days. And my throat dried out and my tongue dried out and uh, I, I, it was miserable having those tubes stuck down my throat. Not even intravenous fluids. They gave me inter intravenous fluid but that doesn't satisfy thirst. All I did was dream. I'd, I'd just been to Disneyland because my sister had gotten married and I'd driven our Vermont cousins to, around Dis California. And we'd gone to Disneyland and all I dreamt of was fruit drinks for 10 days. I, I would beg. I, I couldn't talk because I had the stuff down my throat. But I'd point to uh, an alphabet and I would tell them that I wanted um, uh, an ice pack. And they, give me, uh, they gave me a surgical glove filled with ice. And when they weren't looking, I'd try to bite into it to get liquid. I was just – it hurt unbelievably. If you can imagine a saw running up and down your throat, that's what it feels like to have one of those things. And of course, the, the respirator is constantly pumping. So it's constantly moving inside you and it, it's just a dreadful feeling. Now, the, the, the uh, sequence of events gets a little confused because of the morphine. Uh, they, they didn't put me on that right away. It was a day or so after. But I don't remember what came in what direction or what came in what order. But I began to see everything in red, black, and white. The only thing I can think of is that it was blurring my vision and I was seeing shadows of people in black, the light in yellow, and a halo around them in some kind of red. But they were torturing me. And so I thought they were Nazis, red, black, and white. <laughs> I thought it was the Nazis coming to get me. And um, I do know that it became so painful at one point that I pulled all the tubes out of my throat. And I, I don't know if I was acting sensibly or not. It, was just, it just hurt. That was where the, the real crisis came. They rushed me into the ER or I, whatever it was, some different room and tried to get these tubes down my throat again. And I clamped my teeth shut because it was so painful. And they later told me that a nurse had talked me into, convinced me to, to let them put the tubes down my throat. I remember the incident very well. I don't remember anybody talking to me, although the, the talk may have caused me to do what I did. But I was, um, I had close to an out-of-body experience in the sense that I, the, the room struck me as very green, light green. And I was kind of looking down at myself and thinking, I don't want to be dead. But I got an image, and it wasn't a real image, but it was, it was an imaginary image of myself with a tag on my toe. I didn't visually see that. I thought that. I don't want to be that. Uh, I, did, I do remember thinking I was hovering above myself and looking down at, at, a, at me on the table. And I, I remember thinking very, very clearly, they're only trying to save your life. And I don't want to be dead. Then, you know, I had several more days of, of utter misery. Um, one of the things that you have when you have shock lung, and again, I'm not, I'm not sure I have the sequence right, but they, they want to, wanted to make me cough because they wanted to make, get the stuff out of my lungs. My lungs were filling up with fluid and 
I assume, flux of, of marrow. Um, and I had this incision right in the middle of my stomach and my diaphragm. So when I would cough, it was unbelievably – it was like having somebody stab me with, with two or three knives. So they would say cough and I'd go, huh. And they'd say, no, really cough. And I'd go, huh. And so I told them – so this must have been before the respirator. Uh, they said – I said, get somebody to get a pillow and lean on me so that when I cough, at least I don't tear my stomach open. And so they did. And I went, because huh. it was still painful. And so what they did <laughs> – I can't believe this. This was probably where I thought they were torturing me and there was something to it. They gave me uh, – what is it? Tracheotomy. Yeah they, yeah. they drilled a hole in the base of my throat and they took a syringe of water and they shot it into me. And that made me cough. They were drowning you. Yes. Yeah. And then I – I mean I was, I was drowning and so I coughed and then my stomach hurt and then that cough. It was, it, was, it was unbelievably painful. I mean we should say – I mean our body coughs for a reason. It's yeah. to clear our lungs. Sure. So it is a very good physiological yes. response when you have a lung problem. That's right. And that's what they were trying they to were trying do. They were trying to do the, uh, the right thing but it was horrendous. I mean it was – uh, this is something that you could imagine sort of Dr. Morell on an island doing to a, somebody that he wanted to torture. It was unbelievably painful. You know, we should say for someone who doesn't know anatomy, I mean, your trachea leads directly to. I mean, when when you when you cough up food, um, it, it's because it's lodged in your trachea. Right. So the fact that they cut open your trachea, stuck water down it, they were waterboarding you essentially to get yeah the, worse <laughs> because it actually goes into your lungs. Uh, it was it was. I still remember that feeling. I've never had a feeling like that before or since, and. Uh, it's unforgettable. And like I said, uh, it's that's 10 on my scale. <laughs> I, I suppose there are worse things. I can't imagine it. What you've described here is really just the first few – less than a week, mm-hmm. the first few days right. of this ordeal. Yes, and, and they put me on this tremendous amount of morphine. And then um, when they took me out of the ICU and put me into a room, uh, they gave me an, a 24-hour nurse for one day. And that was nice. And then – when, then she left and I was absolutely desolate. I thought, what, what am I going to do? I, I, couldn't move, I couldn't move anything. I could move the fingers of my left hand. I couldn't even move my left shoulder by this point. I was just completely beat. There's a photograph of me somewhere where I was trying to smile and it looks like I death warmed over. Um, what they did though is they took me off morphine and they didn't tell me. And so I went through withdrawals without knowing it. Uh, because they give me such tremendous doses of this stuff and then stop me cold turkey. I, I only later on realized, hey, that's what was happening because in the morning I'd feel tense. I'd feel increasingly tense. I'd get angry. I'd get weepy. And then in, in the evening I, I, I would have terrible dreams and I would get so hot that the bed would – the sheets would get wet from sweat. And then I'd have shivers and nightmares, unbelievable nightmares. So I was going through withdrawal. And, and nobody a, told me. That's exactly what you're describing is drug it, withdrawal. It, it was awful. And it would have been nice if I'd been told you can expect this, but th- they didn't do that. Or also it's very odd that they didn't wean you off of it. You'd think. <laughs> yeah. It was. These guys were uh, – look, the, I met some really nice people there. Some of the nurses were, were super. The doctors, somewhat less so. And they were doctors who, like I said, had joined the Coast Guard to get out of Vietnam. So I don't think they were probably the top of the drawer. 
and a lot of them were learning their craft and they hadn't learned how to deal with somebody in my situation very well. I'm a PhD historian. I often said if, if a doctor knows as little about medicine as I knew about history when I got out of graduate school, God help us. So. No kidding. And I think unless people have spent a lot of time in the hospital, they don't realize doctors come in and out. Yeah. It's the nurses who take care of you. That's right. And I got, I, got, I got very friendly with the nurses. I mean, a lot of my – I spent four months in the hospital. They couldn't put a pin in my leg because uh, – I think partly because of the, of the drugs and, and getting so wet, I, I had uh, developed rashes. And they were afraid of, of a surgery on the leg that it might uh, infect the marrow. And, of course, you could then lose the leg. So they kept me instead on traction for four months. And a lot of the rest of the time there was was just waiting for things to happen. You know, and it, uh, they, some people were nice, and I used to get along with one one nurse, and they they'd come and they'd take your vital signs. I don't know how many times a day, but the first one was always before dawn, and you could hear this person come down the corridor to take your blood, and uh, you could hear the, the 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 carriage or the the cart that she pushed had a squeaky wheel on it and the, the, the hallway is about 100 yards long and you could hear this thing coming down the hall <laughs> until she'd get to the door and she'd flip on the lights without saying a word and you, you're waking up at it was five or six or whatever it was and then take your blood. Uh, so there, there, there was that but – and they take your vital signs during the day two or three times. I forget how many times but regular times. What kind of award were you on? It, was this award for? I mean, you know, there's the neurological award. Right. There's the um, so so. Is this an, is there an accident award? Was was this uh, uh, orthopedic award? Orthopedic award. I was. Uh, I learned a lot actually. I learned some really humbling stuff, and I, I, I would not recommend anybody fall off a cliff to to learn the stuff that I learned. But I learned some stuff early on. When you're 18 and you're a young guy, you think you're immortal. I learned I wasn't. I also learned that for how, however bad it was for me, it was far worse for other people. The guy in the room next to me would, had, on his 21st birthday had gone swimming and classically had, had dived into the water, broke his neck. He was paralyzed from the neck down and was never going to get better. I also learned for the first time what a terrible disease diabetes was. This was the Merchant Siemens Hospital. A lot of these guys were old alcoholics and they, were, they had diabetes and they were losing bits of themselves. You know, I, I remember one guy, he, he, he basically disappeared before my very eyes within the space of four months, losing a leg, losing fingers, going blind. I never knew until then just what a disease diabetes was. You know, I thought – I was a kid. I thought you get an insulin shot, you're OK. So I learned just how, how grim the world is for an awful lot of people. Um, I had a roommate. First of all, I was in a private room and then they moved me in with a roommate and he was an, an American Indian. He was Sioux from one of the Dakotas and it had a motorcycle accident and a compound fracture and it didn't heal. It just didn't heal. Uh, even the, the wound didn't heal. Um, I, I was in there for four months and I was in a body cast for another 12 weeks. I came back. I visited him. He was still in traction. That's just extraordinary. Yeah. And he, he big guy. I, 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 since I was laid flat, I'd only ever seen him from the side. When I came back, I saw how big he was. His, his shoulders were like six feet across. That's an exaggeration, but he was a big guy. And he was a guy who – all of whose interests were outdoors interests. Um, 
he had no he didn't like to read he didn't he didn't have any indoor interests and this was like torture to him we became very friendly actually and i learned a lot about um north dakota and bar bar culture and and a few other things i, I learned a lot i i learned a lot uh being laid flat and one of the things you learn is how much you appreciate things and one of the most extraordinary experiences i had really was when it all came to an end four months after. Uh, I'd been in this hospital for four months and I, I, your nose, I have a very strong sense of smell. And when they put me in a body cast, I could wheel myself around on my stomach. I was a gurney. And I wheeled outside and that area, if you know it, it's, it's Golden Gate Park. And it's all uh, evergreen trees. And it was like somebody was knocking me out. I couldn't believe the smell. So you've described four months in the hospital, then you're discharged 12 additional weeks in a body cast. Two different body casts, yeah. <laughs> the first one was an amazing clunker. It came up to uh, my, my, my mid-breast um, and it went all the way down the one leg and then went halfway down the other to immobilize my pelvis. So I wasn't even able to move with that body cast. I could, I could kind of lean up. The second one I could move with crutches. It was it was lighter. It only went down to about my my belly button, and uh, it was still pretty clunky. But I could move, and that was that was better. What about uh, did you have a lot of rehabilitation afterwards? No, none. These were the old days. I should say too about my parents that um, you know we were fifty sixty miles away from San Francisco. We lived, and they came all the time. They, they traded off. And I should say about two of my, my friends from high school, uh, one of my closest friends, I'm still friends with him. The other guy I've lost touch with. But he came every week and I thought, this is extraordinary. And, an 18-year-old guy, uh, that's un unheard of. It, it really is. I mean, 18-year-olds don't even know to do that, let alone are moved to do that. And he did every week, every Friday. We used to play Risk or Diplomacy. We'd play a board game. Those were the best times. Now, you you had said right before when you when you began this story that your family you had described the job that you had had having mono. Your family was planning to move to yeah. England. Life must have stopped. Yes, it did. Yeah. Um, well, it did and it didn't. Dad was scheduled to to move. He his his job. He worked for Shell and his job was in London, and he postponed it. But eventually, he had to leave, leaving mom and me. In California, this was I think this was after I came back from from the the hospital though during the time of the body cast, which stretched from I um, I fell off the cliff in October fifth, and we eventually moved to England in June of the next year. So it was yeah life stopped for that period, and uh, you know I'll I can never thank my parents enough. I wanted to say that I was very grateful to my mother as well as my dad. My dad had a cool head and he rescued me. And so he saved my life. But my mother sort of brought me back to life because she took every week, every during the weekdays, uh, she came to visit me in the hospital. And then when I came home, I recuperated for quite a while. I was in two body casts. One was – the first was for six weeks and I could hardly move in it. The second, I could move in it but I was still – spent most of my time in bed. And she nursed me back to health. And uh, the thing I'd like – that I wanted to recall about it mostly was – uh, this was my first chance to get to know her as an adult. 
I fell off the cliff at about 18 in a month. And we spent pretty much a year together, which is unusual for a, a mother and a son. And we got to know each other as adults. And so I wouldn't trade that experience for the world, but I, of course, would not want to fall off a cliff. And, you know, other people helped as well. My sister came, even though she was just recently married and she was going to Berkeley, but she took time and came and visited me. So I was very supported by my family. And uh, it's something that I'll never, never forget and I can't repay. My mom did some really heavy lifting. She really did. At her memorial service, I made a point that I think is, is sort of pertinent. Um, people praise people who've done things like write books, start companies, you know, invent something new. And they don't praise people enough for living and for taking care of other people. It, that just goes down th into the memory hole and it, it really ought not to. She really did nurse me back to life. I mean, it, it's not an exaggeration. I don't know what I'd have done without, without her help and without you know, the help of my family. Dad certainly did his part, but she was there and, uh, and it's something I could never repay, but I'll never forget it. We should also say, uh, you mentioned how um, the respirator saved your life, mm -hmm. and it was fairly newly invented. Mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of medical inventions come from war yeah. to try to save soldiers' lives, and that was the history of the respirator. You also, you mentioned you were in San Francisco. This is 1974, and just who knows how many years later, maybe even in 1974 already, unbeknownst to all of us, the blood supply there was likely already tainted. Right. It was the epicenter of the AIDS epidemic when it first struck San Francisco. And it probably was the late 70s that it first got talked about as this disease that was spreading in the gay community. Mysterious disease. Mysterious disease. But I had eight units of blood in what would eventually become the epicenter of the AIDS epidemic and I just got the right units. Yeah, Elizabeth Glazier too. She was another the the, the actor's wife. She mm -hmm. was another person who who got AIDS through after giving birth and having a blood transfusion, and she transmitted it to both of her children. And yes, so the blood supply. Ryan White was another. Yeah. That's right. In fact, it decimated the hemophiliac mm -hmm. community. Decimated, right. destroyed an entire generation of hemophiliacs before the blood supply was secured. Yeah, it was my great good fortune that I, I fell when I did. If I had to fall, I mean, uh, <laughs> one thing I I, I must say. Um, uh, nobody knows what, how to talk to somebody who's had an accident or who's ill or whatever. But uh, I, I always got a sort of wry laugh of people who come and tell me, you're so lucky. And I think, yes, well, I'm lucky that I survived having fallen off a cliff, but falling off the cliff wasn't, wasn't a stroke of luck. Uh, people don't know what to say. Uh, they, they really don't. Um, you know, the the anesthet anesthetist. anesthetist came in and leaned against my uh, bed and said, well, I could use a six-month break. And one of the nurses who I liked a lot, she, she was a wonderful person, but she had a Triumph Spitfire, which at that time was like a really hot car. And she went over and leaned against the window and looked out at her Triumph Spitfire and said, God, don't you wish you were out of here? <laughs> which I'm sure she was voicing exactly what sure. you were thinking. I mean, she was a wonderful person, but people don't think what they say. And they, 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 you know, there you are. You're not on the same level as the rest of the people. You're in a different world even though you're there. Yeah. No, we don't have a language for a lot of things. We don't know what no. to say when someone is dying. We don't know no. what to say. Even people who are very, very close to us, it, it 
people people often disappear. That's why it's so extraordinary, your story, not only about your parents' steadfast support, but your friend, your 18-year-old friend, which is really extraordinary, that he didn't turn away from it because that's what people tend to do. They don't want to look. They were were stalwarts and uh, both of them – Paris, like I said, I'm still friendly with Bruce. We're, we'd be friendly if we saw one another, but we've we've grown apart. But uh, they were they were first rate. And as I've gotten older, and I realize how callow you are when you're 18, and I was, I'm thinking, man, that's extraordinary. They drove 100 miles every week to see me. You know, I would I would end this normally by asking you how this changed the way you looked at life, but you've already you've already described that. You know, looking back on it. I wouldn't fall off a cliff intentionally, but I gained from it, uh, like I said, perspective. You learn about mortality and it's made me think in in ways that I wouldn't have thought otherwise. But it met, it, I, I met my wife because of it and for that I'll be eternally thankful. The, the woman who lived next to us in Britain had heard my story and said, oh, this is a lonely American. And I know the person to introduce him to. And so he introduced me to Doreen. So, you know, if, I, I hate to say it and it sounds corny, but if the choice was fall off the cliff and meet Doreen or not fall off the cliff and don't meet her, I'd pick the cliff. I wouldn't want to do it again, but it was worth the price. That's great. You're going to bring tears to my eyes. You know, another thing that is also very impressive of the things that you that you could learn, the way you describe your father's cool head in multiple situations throughout this, that is also such an incredible role model for a boy um, for how to behave as a man and also for how to do the right thing for absolutely – because there's no sense in panicking. The way you're going to fix the problem, the way you're going to help here right. is to stay cool and think straight. You know, I've, I've, I've reflected on that too over the years. Um, I had a hard time with dad because he was a Vermonter and unemotional and and quite strict. He had he had he was raised by an alcoholic father. I've learned to admire him. Yeah, I've I've heard of stories about your father over the years in many different contexts. He created a happy family and a stable family when he'd been raised in chaos. And the the older I get, the more I realize that's a miracle. The other thing I was, I've learned is the friends that I have, including very much Paris who, who came to see me every week, they're all people who react well in crises. And I never really thought about it until I was getting ready for this talk and I, I was talking to one of my colleagues and I, I realized I have a lot of friends who have very cool heads. I'm sure, I'm sure you, you, you are drawn to people that are uh, like the models that you admire. So. As I've always said, uh, if you judge me by my friends, I'm doing pretty well. And, and I have to say, I've had the same perspective about the way people behave in an emergency, and those are the kind of people I'm drawn to too. Yeah. It's those cool are the people. Heads. Those are the people you want on your side. You do. Um, I, I, the people I know are not unemotional. They're they they they're quite warm, loving people, but they're they're great in a crisis. Accidents can be catastrophic. Steve Miner's certainly was. But after his accident, so much went right. First-rate responders, top-notch trauma care that included recent innovations in medicine, largely due to the Vietnam War, a father who was cool and competent in the face of a crisis, a devoted mother and sister, and friends who exemplified the meaning of friendship. Thank you for listening to Lifespan. 
Lifespan is a production of WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-executive producer and audio engineer. I'm your host and co-executive producer, Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University. Join us for our next episode of Lifespan when we talk to new mothers about their experience breastfeeding. Given the reality of new mothers' complicated lives today, many often return to work within a few weeks or months of giving birth, breastfeeding turns out not to be as natural or easy as they had hoped. But they persisted. 